The great church historian Bruce Shelley said that he was the man who changed the course of American history. That's a pretty profound statement, especially coming from a church historian. He wasn't referring to a politician or a president. He wasn't referring to a pope or a prime minister. He was referring to a backwoods preacher by the name of James McGreedy or McCready. Just depends on which source you find and uh, use. He was reared in Guilford County, North Carolina, right in the center of North Carolina, in the foothills of the mountains there. Came to the Lord Jesus Christ under strong preaching of repentance and surrendered to the ministry and was ordained at 30 years of age. He moved his family over to Orange County, right there around Raleigh-Durham area, and uh, he had a church, began to preach, uh, but uh, I'm from back that way, and all those folks in that area are Scotch-Irish rednecks, and they will not tolerate a lot of preaching on repentance, and they would not tolerate what he was doing. They broke into the church, they ripped the pews out, and they threw them in the churchyard. They picked the pulpit up, took it out in the churchyard, and set it on fire. And the final thing they did was they sent him a letter they believed to have been in human blood that said, if you do not stop preaching and get out of here, we are going to kill you and your family. He started to run. And he ran and all the way across the state of North Carolina, across the Appalachian Mountains, into the state of Tennessee, over the Great Smokies, across that state, and all the way into the state of Kentucky. We don't know what happened to him on that run, but something took place in his life. Something transpired in his life, and when he got to Logan County, Kentucky, he stopped and he started preaching again. In fact, he became pastor of three churches. They called it a circuit in that day, but the correct term in our day is, this guy started satellites. He had the Red River, the Gasper River, and the Muddy River churches, all three that he began to preach in. And you say, well, he got there, he evidently was successful in these three churches, then he must not have had any opposition. Oh, Lord, yes, he did. He faced fierce opposition in that ministry. And I want you to look at the life of a man who faced tremendous opposition and ran. His name was David. Take your Bibles, go back to 1 Samuel, and go to 1 Samuel chapter 22. And I hope you've got a copy of God's Word. You open it there and let me thank Dr. Patterson uh, for the honor of being here in this prestigious, aus auspicious, venerated pulpit. This is my school. I am as you. I have class at 2.30 this afternoon, so I'll wrap this up uh, in about an hour and a half. <laughs> I, I not only, I hope to be graduated with my third degree, as I look at my rhetoric professor, um, with my third degree, at some point in time, my dad would say, surely to the Lord, you're going to get educated, son. I hope one day to learn how to preach. So I have class like you. I have a church. I have the 10th grandchild on the way. I'm here today. This time next week, I'll be in Norfolk or Chesapeake, Virginia, then back to Florida for a conference, then North Carolina, then South Carolina, then North Carolina, and then back to South Carolina, and I'll wrap up the month of September. So I have my hands full, just like you do, and I have coursework to do and reading and papers to write. 
So let's get to the passage. Preaching, ministry is tough. Now I'm going to talk to you today. I'm not here to dazzle you with, with syntactical exegesis or, or to, you know, woo you with great rhetoric. I want to talk, I want to pastor you because that's all that I am. I'm a pastor. And I want to talk to you because ministry is tough. It is hard. James Barnett, George Barnett said earlier this year, I think it was in January of this year, 90% of those who start now in ministry will never retire from ministry. You look around, 90%. You look around here, only 10% of this class is going to be left at the time of retirement. That is an awful thought uh, at the same time as being a staggering thought. But it's because ministry is hard. It's difficult. Uh, it is disheartening. I'm telling you, it's disheartening. They put these speakers up here so I can't jump out here and jump on uh, the front of this. But I'm telling you, you will be disheartened. You will be discouraged. You will even go through moments of depression because ministry is hard. It's tough. It ain't for wimps. Now, I, I realize how I use the word. Um, David faced great difficulty after the call of God on his life. He was ordained by Samuel, but he did not get the throne as quickly as everyone thought he might get the throne. But he did get persecution. Now, you have to ask yourself in the ministry, are you here for promotion or are you here to serve the purposes of God? Let me tell you something. Promotion is not difficult to take. You can handle it. I'll let you in on that. It's easy. It's not difficult at all. But are you here to be in the place of promotion? Do you think that you're going to go from success to success, from victory to victory, from one great pulpit to the next great pulpit? Let me tell you something. Ministry is difficult. Promotion is not. You're going to face opposition and persecution, but now listen to me. Persecution becomes the classroom of preparation. If you never go through the persecution, you never experience the preparation. Now, you're in a place of preparation. Yes, Dr. Queen, it may, it may very well be the place of persecution as well from time to time. David's in a cave, 1 Samuel chapter 22. He's in a cave, but he's in the cave of preparation. It's a place where you're going to find yourself from time to time. It's a place where all of us have to go regardless of what size church you pastor or who you pastor. And it's important that you learn the lessons there in the cave of preparation. Jeremiah said this in chapter 9. He said, oh, that my head were waters and that my eyes were a fountain that I could weep both day and night. Nehemiah, when he heard uh, of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which evidently in that, in, in that uh, message, there, there obviously was the call of God on his life. He said, I sat down, I wept, I fasted, and I mourned for days. Paul said when he got to Corinth, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, when I came there, he says, I was there in weakness, fear, and in trembling. 
ministry is difficult. David discovers it's difficult, and he faces great persecution. But the fact of the matter is this. That place of preparation enables you to endure. Listen, it enables you to endure the difficulty for the glory of God. And that's what David is going to experience in this cave. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, let me just stop right there. And I want you to see several things. And the first thing I want you to see is this, is that place of preparation often exposes you to periods of isolation. Now, David is there by himself. And you need to understand why that's important. And in, in order to do that, I've got to back you up now to the 17th and the 18th chapters of 1 Samuel. He's there in that cave. Now, keep that in mind all by himself. He's in isolation. Nobody else is there with him. Now, watch it. what happens. As you back up to chapter 17, he's killed Goliath. You know that story. Uh, on their way back, you know, Saul takes him and says, this guy's not going to be in the orchestra anymore. We're going to put this guy, he's going to be a commander of forces. This guy's got some real ability here militarily. But on their way back, they hear the song, uh, Saul is slain his thousands, David is slain his ten thousands, and all of a sudden, verse 8, chapter 18, Saul's angry. He's displeased. He's bitter. He's mad. This, uh, this spirit of suspicion creeps in on Saul, and he's going to try to kill David. And in fact, in verse 10, it, we're told an evil spirit from God came mightily upon him. He had a spear in his hand. Verse 11, Saul hurled the spear for, the thought, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. This happens twice. They're in a small room, obviously. They're not in a great palace somewhere, but they're in a small room. Saul is head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. He's a big man. He's got all of this weaponry at his disposal, and he picks up this spear in a small room, and he hurls it at David. Now, you would think that that man, proficient as he was, would have been able to hit David. Now, listen, I'm going to give you a side note right here, okay? I want you to listen to me carefully on this. One day you're going to be in a church and somebody's going to tweet something about you that's not going to be as sweet as what they tweeted about Dr. Patterson this past week. Somebody's going to write a blog on you. Somebody's going to send you a letter. Somebody's going to talk about you in a meeting. Somebody's going to say something to your face in front of a group of people and you're going to feel that spear squish by your head. And you're going to wonder, how do I survive this? You just remember Saul and David. God can make easy targets hard to hit. Now, the opposite of that is true as well. He can make hard targets easy to hit when he wants to. Now, I've just thrown somebody a sermon right there. You need to be taking notes, somebody out there somewhere. There you go. He runs. David runs out of that place. He escapes that. You know that chapter. You come to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, Jonathan tells him, listen, Saul, my father is seeking to put you to death. Verse 2, hey, you've got to run. Stay in a secret place. Go hide yourself. David takes off. He runs home to his wife, to Michael. 
Uh, she looks at him and she says, let me tell you something. You know daddy's not going to give up that easy. He's going to send a platoon down here to get you. You'd better get out of here. David, you'd better run if you're going to stay alive. So he goes out the back window. She takes a household idol, that's a whole nother sermon, puts it in the bed, puts goat's hair on it. What does that say about David's hair? <laughs> to try to fool the soldiers when they come in, they come in, they discover he's not there, he's gone. Where is he gone? He's run now from there, from Michael, his wife, from Jonathan now. He has run all the way to Ramah up there where Samuel is, and he's hiding behind the robes of the, pre, uh, of the, of the prophet of God. He tells him what's going on, what Saul's trying to do. And so Samuel takes him and hides him at Naoth. Well, Saul does exactly what you anticipate. He sends soldiers there to Ramah. He sends him up there to capture David. But they get within the sound of good worship. They, they just start singing. It's like Donald Trump in the church in Detroit. He just get there, you just break out with it. Saul decides to go himself. Saul goes up and he, he gets close within it and he gets caught up in the spirit. So what does David do? David runs from there, chapter 20. You begin to feel like we're in John Wayne movie called The Searchers where he's running from Scar the Indian. He is just on the run trying to get away constantly. Then David, verse 1, chapter 20, fled from Naoth. In Ramah, and he came and he said to Jonathan, what have I done? You're going to say that a lot of times in a minute. What did I do? Just tell me. I'll repent. I'll sacrifice a goat. Whatever it is, let's just get this thing right. So he's on the run. And as he runs now, he and Jonathan work out this covenant. And they work out a signal. And you know the story there in chapter 20, how Jonathan shoots the arrows and he sends his runner on ahead and says, go get those arrows. And David comes out of hiding and Jonathan says, listen, he's mad. He's going to kill you. You've got to run. So what does he do? Chapter 21, he runs to Ahimelech, to Nob, to where the priests are. And when he gets in there, when he runs into this place where the priests are, Ahimelech is there, and he's stunned. He looks up. It's as if it would be, it would be just like, the, it would be as if you looked up and you saw the vice president walk in by himself. Uh, no security detail, uh, no attendants, no chauffeur, no, no, nobody else. You, you just look up and you see him there and you think, what in the world are you doing here? That, why, why would you be by yourself? And, and so what David does is this, he becomes unreliable in his panic. Now think about this. He's running, running, running. He's stressed. He's in a panic. And now he becomes unreliable. He lies to the priest. Not only is he unreliable, but now he is going to be unrestrained in what he says. He begins to talk too much. That happens when you panic. When you panic, you're tempted to lie. When you panic, you talk too much. And so there as he speaks and he spills and he tells Ahimelech all of this stuff, standing there is Doeg the Edomite, who happens to be the chief shepherd of Saul. He's going to leave there. He's going to report all of this back to Saul. But the third thing that he does is this, he acts uncustomarily. He does something that is not like David at all. He takes the sword of Goliath. Now look, you get to chapter 21. He takes the sword of Goliath, and Lord have mercy, where does he go? 
It's like OJ digging up the old knife that they've been looking for and trying to get on an airplane with the thing in his pocket. Everybody's going to see. This is Goliath's sword. He goes to Gath. They take him. They've got him in hand. If you read the text, it says that they have him in hand. In other words, they've captured him. And they take him to the old king, Achish, there of the Philistines. And he embarrasses himself. It's the only way he can save himself. He begins to drool. He begins to slobber. He acts as if he's out of his mind. You would think he is out of his mind. Why in the world would you take the sword of, uh, of Goliath and run to his hometown with it? It's like a horse running to the glue factory. And, and you wonder, what is going on? What is happening? What is taking place? David, what, what's going on with you? You're in such a panic. You're not thinking. This isn't like you. And so he sits there and he scribbles on the gates and Achish looked at his servants and like a Baptist preacher, he says, don't we have enough nuts in here? We don't need another one. And so David runs. Do I lack madmen that you brought me one more madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Are you going to let him into my house too? And David runs, chapter 22. Now you get to the passage. He runs. He departed from there. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. He's there. He's by himself. He's isolated. No one else is there. There is no Michael there to run to at the house. There is no Jonathan to turn to for information. There is no Samuel there to hide behind the robes of the prophet. There are no priests there like there were at night. There's not even a, 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 a Philistine king to turn to for help. He's all by himself. And have you noticed through this whole thing, all of these chapters, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, till you get to 22, the one thing David never does, he never prays. Never prays. In all of this, the sweet psalmist of Israel never calls out on the name of God. He never lifts up his voice in prayer saying, God, help me. But God gets him into the place of isolation where there's not another voice to be heard. And there he prays. You say, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not in the text. Yes, it is in the text. It's in Psalm 147. He writes two psalms from the cave. Now, I have spent a lot of time trying to run down, was this the cave of Engedi or the cave of Adullam? And most Old Testament um, commentators agree this was most likely the cave of Adullam. And I want you to look at what he prays. Now, I've gone through all of that to get you to this point, to try to get your attention, to get you to focus on this one thing. And this one thing is this. I want you to hear what he begins to pray. Listen to this. He begins in verse 1. Now, notice what he says. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. Can you just hear him in that cave crying out? Just the echo through that cave. I cry loud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication. I pour out my complaint. I declare my trouble. Do you see that? I mean, he states it and he restates it and he restates it and he restates it. He gets in that cave and there's nobody there to talk to. So what does he do? He calls out to God. He begins to pray something he hasn't done through all of this writing. 
Many times, God will put you in the place of isolation because you not only need to talk to him, he needs to talk to you. Now listen to what he prays. Let me show you three parts of this very quickly. Verse 3, it's a recollection about the past. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my pain. Thank God, God knows what you go through. He knows all the hurt, all the pain, all the things that have been said, every spear that has gone by. He knows all of that. There is this recollection when you get into prayer, you begin to recall how God was there. Listen to what he says. You knew my path. You in the way where I walked. They've hidden traps from me, but you know what I've gone through. Look at the second thing in verse 5. You come to this, there's a recognition of God's provision. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. In other words, it's a present tense. You are my refuge. You are my provision. I may not count on everybody else or can count on anybody else, but I can sure count on the fact that what I need today, my God will provide. Y'all know how to say amen? Amen. Have you discovered that? Well, hang on. If, you, if none of this resonates with you, you can get in a Baptist church. It's coming. You, you need this. You need to hear this. Because I don't want you to be discouraged out of ministry. I want you to understand that the place of persecution is actually the schoolroom of preparation. You need to understand God may not change your circumstances. But God will change you through the circumstances if you let him. Here is this past recollection. Here is this recognition in the present. But here's the realization, God will redeem me. Look at verse 7. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. You will deal with blessings in my life. Man, look at where this guy's come. Look at this point. He's in this cave of preparation. He's in this place of isolation. And there in isolation, he begins to pray. I, I've had a son. This past year, uh, Dr. Patterson has been maybe the happiest year I've had in 10 years. And I'll tell you why. Because I've been involved in this program. And I'm not just saying that. I love it. I'm so happy. I am so thankful to, I just enjoy it. At 58 years of age, I wonder why I waited so long to come back and do it. But y'all didn't have a distance PhD until last year. But I've had a son who's gone through a hard time in ministry this last year. He moved to California to help be part of a team that started a church. And within a year, God slammed shut the door on his life. He shut that door of ministry there, and, and I watched that boy. When you watch your child agonize, I don't know how to explain it. it I, I, would far, I would rather go through agony unspeakable than to see one of my children or grandchildren go through any kind of hurt. And I watched him, and I talked to him, and I said as much until the, I, I got a nudge from the Lord, and, and the nudge was essentially, now, Hush. Daddy, you've said enough. You've said enough. And I came to the place where I just had to be quiet. I, he's a grown man. He's 30 years old. He's got his own family. I've said all I can say. I've done all I can do. 
And I watched him, and I went out in the backyard. Listen, I I, I prayed. I said, God, this is what I'd like. God, God, if you'd do this, and you'd do this, and you'd do this, and you'd do that. If you'd do all that for my boy, I sure would appreciate it. This is my boy. I love him. If you'd do that for him, I sure would appreciate it. I went out in the backyard. We've got a, we've got a, a kind of a hot tub that's, a, that's a, on steroids. It's a big thing. We, we put it mainly for the grandkids. And I'm forever killing snakes in that thing. If you think you got snakes in Texas, we got 10 for every one you got here. And they're every kind of color, and they're weird, and they are, they are bizarre. And I, I'm out there trying to get, and now listen, let me tell you, it's better the snake than the stinking alligator. So I, I go out, and yes, they do. They get in everything. They are there. I go out, and I'm trying to catch this snake in the water with a hoe. And I'm just jabbing all over this place to get this thing. And if I, I catch him, I got him right there at the head with a hoe. He's under the water. This thing is curling up around the, the hoe, and my phone rings. And it's Trey. So I answer it. You know, if it's one of the kids or, or my wife, I'm going to answer it. So I answer the thing, and I'm on there, and he says, Daddy, I want you to know I've just been hired by the Kentucky State Convention to do this and this and this, and they're taking care of all of this. And they told me that if I wanted to go and finish my master's degree, I could finish my master's degree. They would work around it. And, and they're doing all these things. And I'm sitting there with this hoe down on this snake's head. And I got this phone up here. And God says, listen, I got my heel on the head of the serpent. And I'm taking care of business. Woo! Hey, look, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be falling out in the aisle right now. That's good stuff. God takes care. He has to put you sometime in the cave of preparation where there's isolation, not another voice, so you'll learn to talk to him and you'll learn to listen to him. My time's gone. That's the introduction to what I want to do this morning. Let me give you two other things real quick because it won't be Baptist unless I have three points, okay? Let me give you the second thing. Preparation, listen, always involves education. Let's go back. I barely got into the text there. So let's go back. Chapter 22, 1 Samuel. And um, listen to what happens, what God's going to do. Now he's there and God's going to give him an education. And the education is this. He brings a crowd of people to him. Now God doesn't bring those people to him so they will comfort him. Listen to me. This is ministry. This is going to be you and whatever God's called you to do and whatever ministry God calls you to do. He brings all these, he brings all this family and 400 men who are in debt, who are in distress, and who are just discouraged. He doesn't bring them to David to minister to David. He brings them there for David to minister to them. I'm going to tell you out there in the ministry When you hurt, don't be looking for the president to come running to your doorstep and pat you on the back and tell you everything's going to be okay because it's not going to happen. That chairman of deacons, that chairman of your trustees, that faithful family in your church that you thought were your best friends, let me tell you something. They're not going to come running to your house. Sometimes they do. That's great. That's wonderful. 
Usually what God does is this. He brings you more ministry to do. Now I'm trying to be very, I am telling you what happens when you're in a church. You're down, you're discouraged. What's he going to do? He's going to bring people who are down and discouraged and in distress to you. And he's trying to teach you. There's an educational process going on. Part of what he's trying to teach you is this. He's trying to teach you to have compassion for people. Listen to what is said. Verse 1, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him and became, he became captain over them. You see, he's got to now minister to them and over them. Now there were about 400 men with him and David went from there to Mizpah Moab and he said to the king of Moab, take my father, take my mother, take my family here, take care of them. Now he has to go literally across the country. If we had a map up, I'd show He goes across the country, gets them over there to the king of Moab. And you say, well, why does David do that? Because his great-grandmother was Ruth, a Moabitess. He's got family connections, and family always has to take you in. He's showing compassion. Outside of being obedient to the Word of God, that you honor your father and mother. Outside of that, he's showing compassion now, I want to tell you one verse out of Acts chapter 10 that if I could leave with you about pastoral ministry, it's what uh, Peter said to Cornelius when he said, and you know Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good. There's not enough kindness in the ministry anymore. I watch Men at conventions, I watch them in different places who are, who are too important to speak and say hello. Now, let me just ask you, is that Christ-like? We're not kind the way we need to be in ministry. Tender, merciful, caring. That's the pastor. That's ministry. Whether you're pastor, music, children, education, matters not. People are looking for a display of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let me get on since y'all aren't responding to that too well. And let me show you the second thing. And the second thing is instruction. Now, you read this right here where it says, this is who God bought to him. Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, and everybody who was in distress. That's who came to David. That's going to be most of the people you preach to, minister to, work with day in and day out. That's where they are. Some of y'all may be there right now. Some of you may have come here in debt and you've gotten deeper in debt and you're distressed. You feel like everything's just squeezing you and you're discouraged right now and you're just discontented with life. Do you know what happens? Put your finger right there and go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 
That's 1 Samuel chapter 22. Look over to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and watch. That's what it said of these guys who were there. It says that they were in distress and in debt and were discontented. But over in 2 Samuel 23, you know what it calls them there? Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men of David. Golly, I love that. What in the world happened there? What in the world took place between 1 Samuel 22 and, and 2 Samuel 23? Something happened to this group of men who were just discontented and distressed and in debt. They become no longer that group. They become the mighty men of David. What happened to them? I'm going to give you two things. There was the instruction of the word. Look, if you're there, 2 Samuel 23. Now, these are the last words of David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Watch this. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. That's inspiration right there, by the way. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. What do you think he taught these guys? He took these 400 bunch of rabble rousers and he gave them instruction. He gave them the word of God. He taught them. They sat around, I can imagine, inside that cave around a small campfire. And there he would share with them what God put on his heart. But the second thing was this. He taught them how to worship. Did you catch what it said here? It said this. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. If you go to Psalm 57, 50, that's the other psalm that he wrote in the cave. Is it 57? Psalm 57, listen to what he says. While he's in this cave, if it's there, the cave of Adullam, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. David is sitting there with 400 of these rough, hard, West Texas Jews, and he looks at them, and he begins to go, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? Whom then shall I fear? Men don't listen to men. Men don't do that. They've never seen a man worship before. And David taught them how to worship. He took hard men, men that were discontented with life, men that felt the squeeze. And there in that place, he gave them the word and he taught them to worship. And it did something to him. All he needed to do was to do what God had called him to do. The most discontented men in the ministry are guys who are not doing what God called them to do. They're not studying. They're not preparing. They're not feeding. They're not visiting. They're not ministering. And you say, well, you know, you, you don't ever... Listen, I'm at the hospital every week. I don't know what other pastors do. I'm at the hospital every week. I can't see everybody, but I catch somebody. I share Christ. I stop and talk to little old ladies. I stop and I hug little children and I bypass men and I give them a firm handshake and let them know I'm a man too. 
And the men who are most discontented in ministry are the ones who are not doing what God's called them to do. Last thing, and I promise this, I'll just briefly hit it. And it's this. Look back at this text. And the third thing is this. That place of preparation is, is, is a place where you'll move to action. You can't stay. Listen to me. Do not live in the land of the hurting. You get hurt, get over it. Move on. There's work to be done. Don't live there and hang out there and nurse that thing. There's a guy shows up here by the name of Gad. He's a prophet. He just pop, he pops up out of nowhere. I can't find him anywhere before this. He just pops up out of nowhere at the cave. The prophet Gad said to David, you can't stay here. You can't lock yourself back here in the office and never go out. So what they said this or that about you? Depart. Go out into the land of Judah. Why? Because the Philistines, chapter 23. Lord, I'm preaching every passage I can find in 1 Samuel this morning. You get over to chapter 23, what's he going to do? God sends him down to Ki-Ela. 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 Sends him there because the Philistines now have surrounded this place and they're stealing everything they've got to eat. And so look, behold the Philistines, chapter 23, verse 1, are fighting against Keilah and they're plundering the threshing floor. Now what does David do? Look at what David does. Did he learn something? Verse 2, he inquired of the Lord. <laughs> this is a guy who learned the lesson in the place of preparation in that moment of isolation, he says, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And then he comes in verse four and he says, well, listen, that's not enough. I'm going to inquire of the Lord again. I'm going to ask him a second time. I'm going to pray a second time. And you know what God says to him? You know the rest of that story, how Saul's going to come and try to capture him because this place is a fortress with a gate on one end and a gate on the other. And all they had to do was seal up both gates and the people there were going to turn him over. That's another lesson. The very people that you do the most for may be the ones who will turn on you one day. I'm just trying to be a pastor this morning and tell you. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the Philistines into your hands, and then I'm going to turn around and deliver you out of the hands of Saul. That's the goodness of God. You remember James McCready? Did he face opposition? He did. He did face opposition. Uh, he took a group of people, and for six months, he began to pray. In 1798, they met every third Saturday, and they spent that day in fasting and in prayer. And on the fourth Sunday of July in 1798, at all three of those satellites where he pastored, where he preached, revival broke out on the same Sunday. And you said, well, that, that's a great way to end. All the opposition goes away. Oh, no, this is when it got bad. It was no longer opposition from without, and it was no longer opposition from within. Now it starts from other pastors. Can I please go 30 more minutes? No, I won't. <laughs> now the opposition comes from other pastors. Other pastors, other denominations. Now jump on McGreedy. Because he's preaching repentance and people are being saved. 
And in 1799, he just keeps praying. The revival spills over into prayer meetings and he keeps praying and they get into 1799 and at Gasper River, they hold what is known as the first camp meeting and what happens, you know, as the second great awakening. Father, you've not called us to ease. The road to Calvary was not easy. You have called us to pick up a cross and to follow you. I pray for these students, Lord, as much as I pray for the people that sit under me week by week. That in the midst of the distress and the discontentedness and the discouragement that can come in ministry, they will get alone with you. And be committed to do what you have called them to do. Because you will enable them to endure for your glory. Amen.